welcome to The Cultural Life of Money and Finance, a podcast series based in the University of Leeds, where we're exploring money and finance through the arts and humanities, asking new questions about finance, the global financial system, and financial behavior in the 21st century, by looking at how money is being and has been thought about in different contexts across historical, cultural, ethical, religious, social, and material settings. We believe that how we think about money matters. If we're going to have an informed debate about the future of money and finance, how it should play a part in human lives and societies, we need to understand the big picture of how money can be talked about, related to, and represented. So in this podcast series, we're talking with researchers and practitioners from across the arts and humanities to get their perspective on questions relating to the cultural life of money and finance and how the arts and humanities can help shape debate on money in the years to come. In this episode, Mark Davis talks to Professor Katie Shaw, Professor of Contemporary Writing at Northumbria University in the UK, about her work on the credit crunch in contemporary culture. Their conversation covers the idea that the entire financial system is a form of fiction. It tackles the important issue of the public's financial literacy. It explores the gender regime of finance and makes a passionate case for the arts and humanities to work more closely with economics and social sciences to explore fully the cultural life of money and finance. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So welcome to Professor Katie Shaw. Professor, thank you for joining us on the Cultural Life of Money and Finance podcast. What's really exciting about the opportunity to speak with you today is that your work explicitly shows the value that the arts and humanities bring by engaging with questions of money, finance and cultural economy more broadly, as well as providing a rich space for social scientists like me and and across a range of disciplines to think differently about how we can approach these areas of study. So there's a lot for us to talk about. So we'll get started straight away, if that's all right. One of the core arguments in your 2015 book, uh, Crunchlit, is that the entire financial system is a form of fiction, uh, a myth that the public are happy to believe and so help to perpetuate. Can you just begin by elaborating on what you mean by this? Yeah, sure thing. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. Really, the book is concerned with uh, the banking system itself as a form of fiction and the role of the credit crunch in casting a spotlight on this. And really before 2007, there was a myth that we all believed about banking. Um, And the story kind of went like this. The bank is a physical place that we know and we trust. It takes our money, customers' money, and it keeps it safe. It lends it to other equally safe lenders and those lenders then pay it back to the bank with interest. And this enables the bank to lend to other savers and for people to gain reward for their savings. And this lovely system, this fictional system was based on a long gone relationship, but it was a relationship that the public were very happy to believe and along with the banks were guilty of perpetuating. Because in reality, our financial systems by 2007 were a world away from this fairy tale narrative of responsibility and safety. And when a large number of customers all went to withdraw their money from the bank at the same time, as in the case of Northern Rock, 
the bank collapsed because it was unable to honor either the funds that those customers had entrusted to it or to sustain this widely held belief about how the banking system actually works. So the credit crunch really blew narratives about popular banking apart. It proved them to be literally incredible. And it showed us, the general public, that the stories about finance that we've really invested all our trust in are false. And in response to the crunch, we saw a real desire and a hunger for new narratives and new understandings about banking. And that's where culture came in. And that's where my book really picked up. Yeah, I think that the Northern Rock example is fascinating, isn't it? Because I think what I got from your engagement with that at the start of the book is that on one level, the risk to um, to savers was that they wouldn't be able to get their money out. But actually, the response of the state and the media was more to protect the idea that our very understanding of what a bank is was actually was actually at risk. And that's all that we would, you know, 24 hours from the money running out. Sure. But 24 hours from people realizing that banks aren't safe places and those narratives are uh, are open to question. I think it's a really powerful kind of way of, uh, of looking at it. You also raised the important issue as part of that, of the public's financial illiteracy, something that is also a problem amongst uh, academics who are often quite nervous if they're not formally trained economists of engaging with questions of money and finance and, and can be quite hesitant of taking a step into, into that world. Uh, you're someone who's done that very successfully, and I'm interested in how you entered that world and, and navigated the complexities of finance. So. Did you feel like you had to speed learn uh, a new financial language? And also, I guess, you know, as a sociologist, I'm interested in looking at the opposite view of that and how well you think banks and hedge funds um, actually understand people, because I think the illiteracy might be a two way thing. Well, I think financial literacy is an incredibly hot topic then and now. Uh, We are often told that, you know, money talks. But the language of finance itself has historically always been one of certainty, right, of representation. But really, by the time we reached 2007, the language of finance, much like the systems it was trying to represent, had become more and more abstract. And in the wake of the credit crunch as well, these monetary terms that were all used by politicians and economists and the media actually meant very little to the person on the street. And so they became themselves part of this exclusionary, obstructive approach to us understanding both the wider causes and also the consequences of the credit crunch. And for me, when I came to write this book, I thought I had a pretty good grasp of economics, right? And I was wrong. I was wrong because of the language. You know, I got the concepts, I understood the theory, but how many people, for example, know their CDO from their SIV? How many people know a derivative or a hedge? So I read and I read and I talked and listened to anybody and everyone who would engage with me from the financial industry, really, largely off the record. But with these acronyms and with these shorthand terms, it's really important, I think, to remind ourselves that many of them, even when you explain them, don't often make sense. And if something doesn't make sense, there's often a reason. And many of these terms actually were being used to disguise some of the very dark and murky methods and practices that led to the crash. These acronyms stop people from understanding. 
And, you know, when we think about in the aftermath of the credit crunch, the queen turning around to bankers and asking, you know, why did no one see this coming? That gestures, right, to the invisibility uh, that is caused by this use of acronyms and by this use of language. Obstructive language means that when we think about the role, for example, of culture in helping us understand finance and the credit crunch, culture can play a really enabling role, uh, one that is encouraging both readers and audiences to become more literate, more familiar with these terms, to grasp the principles, if not always the intricate details of how financial mechanisms are operating and the part they played in creating this new context for financial markets by the turn of the millennium. So in my book, I was interested in thinking the way, well, the ways in which Crunchlet could expose this shared language of finance and also open it up in terms of inclusion to help us all penetrate uh, and understand the movements of the financial world and therefore understand how power operates, right? Because a lot of this language is about metaphor. You know, the world of finance is, as we might talk about later on, incredibly gendered. And a lot of the language is based on metaphors to do with sport or the military or very sexualized images of playing or hunting or racing or engaging in battles. And in the aftermath of the credit crunch, we get lots of metaphors that are drawn from the realm of the Gothic, right? We're talking about vampire banks and we're talking about, you know, bankers as monsters, these very subhuman parasitic symbols of greed and of power and of alienation, this kind of ultimate post-millennial monster. So we've got language is playing a really key role in both obscuring the practices that created the crunch, but also obstructing our understanding of the aftermath of the financial crisis. And in terms of thinking about the second part of your question, its effect on the financial awareness of the general public and how the sector understands that public, I think that you know we've seen a lot of the language of finance infiltrate into popular culture. Economic discourse now plays an increasing role in the language of culture and society. So people who had before the crunch who'd never really shown any interest or the remotest curiosity in knowing about financial matters are now post-credit crunch, you know, in many cases quite deeply concerned and want to know more. And how well the financial sector knows people? Well. I think in some ways they understand people very well. They understand our behaviours. But what certainly came across loud and clear from my interviews with people who worked in the sector was that the culture of finance, particularly in the lead up to the credit crunch, had become a culture that was toxic. And those toxic expectations and practices became actualized on trading floors and in the very practices that led to the risky business underpinning the crunch. Friends of mine, even from university, who ended up working in some of these organizations would talk to me very regularly about having all three meals a day at work and there being hairdressers in their, in their office building and dry cleaners in their office buildings. So they never had to leave, sleeping under their desks, that whole idea of working long and hard. And this is not sustainable, right? And I think in the wake of the credit crunch, what we've seen is public attitudes shift a lot, not only in terms of bonus culture um, and public ownership and shared ownership, but also of what we, the kind of the models and practices of banking and finance that we'd expect to see uh, in contemporary society. But banks and the financial world obviously do understand humans to an extent, but ultimately, I think in the lead up to the financial crisis, as with all financial crises, we see it being led by the madness of people, 
you know, Isaac Newton very famously said, you know, I can calculate the motions of celestial bodies, but not the madness of people, obviously, because after he himself had speculated in the financial bubble and lost money. And the, the success of money leads to complacency, right? And the success of people leads to complacency. And this is magnified in the lead up to 2007, because we have this rise of disembodied finance, where money becomes spectral. The reality of the money in your savings account or on your credit card or on your mortgage becomes far removed from you. And so it leads to really this sense that we have a blind faith in the market and that the market is always right and that people will follow the pull of the crowd. So I think finance does understand people, but it's very good at forgetting. And I think I'm more interested in thinking about the role of culture in helping us remember and keeping some of this institutional knowledge about humanity and human behaviour. It's fascinating, isn't it? I think that your point about Queen's letter in particular, this kind of collective uh, failure of lots of very bright people, as the response argued, you know, I think that there are a lot of people who pointed to the contradictions of capitalism in various activist movements who definitely saw the financial crisis coming. So that point about the language that's used and also whose voice counts. I think is really interesting, isn't it? That there's an exclusionary kind of practice of speaking in a particular code that means it's only accessible to those who are inside the tent, so to speak. And, and until you can learn to speak in that way, actually your analysis is, is held very much, you know, at kind of arm's length, no matter how kind of accurate it might be. I very much enjoy the idea that Isaac Newton should probably take an introductory module to sociology in order to understand people slightly better. I, I think that's very important. But the question of how language is used, I'm thinking of parallels that are often drawn to the use of Latin by religious leaders in modern societies and the extent to which there's a kind of enjoyment, a kind of jouissance amongst the people who can speak that language because of its exclusionary power. Did you come across that in your fieldwork, a kind of sense that they are the people who know far better than the general public. I guess I'm just interested in how that power is experienced by those on the inside. Yeah, I think in many cases, particularly people who didn't necessarily come from a, a PPE Oxford background or an economics at Oxbridge background, the people I talked to, I think it was significant that all of them were off the record for a start. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, none of them wanted anything written down. It was all oral over phone calls and, and meetings and the days where we could meet each other <laughs> to do participant research. And, you know, the most for me, that kind of that sense of, of deliberately using obstructive language to both mask understanding and limit understanding, but also, as you said, to gesture in a kind of a almost Bactinian way where you have the word unit being used to kind of point in two directions at the same time. It reminds me very much of what we see from our prime minister today, from Boris Johnson, where in the middle of trying to explain something incredibly important, he will just throw some Latin into the conversation that effectively obscures his meaning, distances you from it, makes you feel small if you don't understand Latin but also at the same time gestures towards his heritage and tradition of being educated and that and being able to wield it as effectively as a tool against communication. You know, I think it is difficult. Language use obviously is always difficult and it can always be exclusionary. But at the same time, when we're dealing with an area like finance and like money that affects all of us, that we are all also implicated in, <laughs> like it or not, then I do think that economists have a responsibility 
to use language in a transparent way to aid understanding and to aid education. But, you know, as we might talk about later on, this also does come down to education. And we are never, I mean, in this country, educated, I don't think, in the language of finance, certainly not from primary school, that you, you can leave secondary school not knowing, you know, what a credit card is, how mortgages work, what APR on your credit card might look like. Uh, what debt is and how you can manage it and how it might not necessarily be a bad thing that's demonized in every circumstance. So I think it does lead us back to the language we use to educate people in finance too. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, just anecdotally, I was at an event with some students a couple of years ago and they were due to graduate and they were asking me when they would learn what a mortgage is and how savings accounts work because they gone through the whole of school expecting that that would come at some point and here they were about to graduate from a university and, and still felt nervous about how finance works and I think if you don't have a family resource to call upon in asking those questions it can be incredibly uh, intimidating to, to suddenly find yourself in that world. Building on this point about the language that's used in, inside of finance, one of the issues that's intrigued us right from the start of this project is the use of fiction inside of finance. So the language they use, the metaphors they deploy, as you, you mentioned before, and how these fictions, just as much as any formal mathematical formula, are used to justify their practices and, and to sustain those financial myths that we were talking about before. You mentioned a few of these already. Did you come across this as a kind of common practice in your conversations with banks and, and hedge funds? Yeah, and I think that, you know, the the idea of, of using shorthand ways of describing things or metaphors for describing incredibly big, complex ideas or practices is on one hand very useful, and I'm not unsympathetic to that. I think we all do it, and we all do it as a shorthand way of talking about our practices within our own industry, particularly when we are talking to other people where we can assume a degree of knowledge already. And therefore, if we then go to the pub with our friends or our family and then start talking in that same language, we are excluding them sometimes in a way we might not even be aware of. Um, so I think this is good that we check ourselves in terms of our language use and what we're doing but certainly yeah within the industry the use of metaphor and of shorthand and acronym and of slang was extreme uh, to the point where I would have to do that thing of kind of stop in conversations and just say my stock phrase became can you give me the ladybird version of that right you know like the ladybird books we read as kids can you just unpack it for me and it was only then that you know you sit there going actually there's no point just nodding my way through this conversation and then at the end being like I have 10 phrases that I now don't understand <laughs> and I need to go away and I did become more literate in that the more people I spoke to because obviously you're accessing the culture right and you're becoming more culturally literate but this is really what we see in Crunchlet that tries to dig deep into some of these metaphors and language use and only by representing them in fiction or in film and tv and culture can we really magnify them and look at them and say okay well what are the implications of a workplace that uses the language of hunting and killing and and waging war and fighting battles how does that become actualized on the floor in people's practices and their values so I think culture offers us a really nice platform for doing that and obviously you know people are quite hungry to know more about the world of finance especially in the wake of the credit crunch and this is also where the role of non-fiction comes in too. And I think picking up on that, Cedric Watts features in Crunchlit book. Do you think he's right that fiction reveals a truth about finance, whereas actually those ladybird books on finance that are meant to be more factual actually, you know, often serve to perpetuate myth? 
I think both have a part to play. And the overall message of Crunchlet is that we can't have true understanding unless we listen to all of the voices and all of the representations. And nonfiction does have an incredibly important role to play too. Um, you know, you just need to look at the number of books in your local bookstore. You know, we're all authored by so-called insiders or witnesses to what happened. People want to hear insider accounts, right? They want real life tales. But generally, a lot of these accounts are quite poorly written. <laughs> they fall into management speak or very predictable narrative arcs. Quite a few of them have that kind of narcissistic saviour complex about it was all terrible, but I stepped in and made my small contribution to changing history. But all of them are stories, okay? All of them are, are voices and we have to think about all representation. But actually, it's probably really important for our public understanding and our collective history that we can triangulate all of these different voices to create a more honest understanding of the financial crisis and how we can learn from it today. And, you know, we said, again, nonfiction and education has a hugely important part to play in that. And, you know, we've seen in the wake of the crisis changes in some cases to the way in which economics is taught. And we've had a huge spotlight shone on economics in terms of how it is or has been in the past perhaps accused of having a lack of critical thinking a lack of real world application and a lack of understanding or promotion of consideration of ethical um, and political contexts and we're seeing you know the developments of things like post-crash economics at manchester and also at leeds and the way in which we teach economics to the people who will be leading these fields tomorrow changing because Unless we change the way we teach economics, we're not going to change the way these systems are working. So the economics graduates of today will be the policymakers of tomorrow. And there is a school of thought that they're particularly ill-equipped uh, if we don't start teaching in a more kind of holistic manner. I think all too often when I dropped into economics lectures, when I was writing the book in various universities, you would see a syllabus that was devoid of things like poverty, of climate change, of inequality, and not just in the teaching, but in the textbooks as well, and in the secondary reading. So if we're teaching a subject area with the same old tired toolkit, then we, you know, we don't really have the opportunity to assess whether the methods are actually working and helping us create change. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the things I'm constantly grateful for here at Leeds is that our economics division is is quite proudly heterodox. So we're quite fortunate that our economics colleagues, they, they are engaging with questions of climate and inequality in, in quite a progressive way, which is great. Another idea that comes across clearly in, in the Crunchlet book, and again, that really resonates with a lot of the conversations that we've been having in, in this project, is the idea that money is becoming increasingly invisible in people's lives, by which we tend to mean a kind of turn to the immaterial as we move towards a digital economy, as you mentioned, and, and a kind of fully cashless society. But you make the point that actually prior to the credit crunch in 2007 and eight, money was actually deliberately being made hypervisible, I think is, is your term, uh, hypervisible in people's lives through telephone banking, smartphone payments, etc. So do you think that hypervisibility has actually played more of a role in exposing the myths of how money and finance work? I think it's really interesting, right? And it's shifted again since I wrote the book. And, you know, we might come on to talk about COVID and money uh, later on. But our relationship with money and its visibility has never been pro more problematic, really, than in the new millennium, because money is at once both one of the most familiar and intimate aspects, right, of our daily lives. And now more than ever, whether you've got it or don't have it or, or spending it or saving it, 
it really shapes everything about who you are and what you do but it's also really complicated because it operates both as a symbol and also as a representation of concepts and ideologies because the value the actual source of value and money always lies elsewhere and as a result it has this kind of very spectral role and prior to the credit crunch you know the financial sector had led us the general public to believe that we had more control and understanding in many ways of our money than ever before. And as you say, we had the advent of internet banking, of telephone banking, we could pay for things from our mobile phones, we had more options for credit cards than ever before. We had everyday finance like mortgages and consumer debt that become so normalized that nobody ever questioned them, or in many cases, were never even taught about them or taught to question them. Um, and we all have become very, you know, acclimatized to credit culture. We would readily spend money we didn't have. And in many cases would do that because we knew we were better off buying something with 0% APR and having the money in our savings account, for example. But all of this fiction that we had control over money and that it was there in front of us in lots of different forms masked the truth that it was not tangible and it was not safe. And in the credit crunch, we see a crisis that shatters our beliefs in money, but creates doubts about its representational value and its security. And it makes money, this thing that we think we know and control really well, it makes money uncanny, right? It makes us look again at money. And it shatters a symbolic illusion that it stands for something. And it really also shatters our trust in money. I feel like suddenly money is fragile and our popular narratives about finance kind of fail at this point as fictions. And if we think about money and visibility in literature, well, money has always been a really popular topic of fiction and more broadly of culture and the arts. Literature in particular has always over time responded to changes in economic circumstance and it's sought to represent um, challenges in each age through the narrative form. Writers have always been really concerned with, you know, the material conditions and relations of the economy and its impact on society. And particularly if we're thinking about the novel, the novel has been obsessed with money, having it, not having it, the horror of bankruptcy in the Victorian era, the glory and the hedonism of having money when we think about, you know, the 1980s and the financial crash as a kind of a significant trope um, has become dominant in literature. So literature offers us a recognition of how important and visible money has been over time, but also of the way in which it's increasingly virtual and social role actually became a little bit less clear, a little bit more opaque in the lead up to 2007. Do you think, therefore, that that kind of that immaterial turn towards a, a more kind of digital of finance thinking of, of the role of fiction in helping us to reimagine our engagement with money when it's become so divorced from our everyday reality as a kind of material object but also I guess just building on what you were saying the kind of the complexity of virtual money you know how does the novel capture something like bitcoin or blockchain when it's so poorly understood and if it's not reflected back to us through fiction how do we then start to not only understand, but begin to develop critique and morality plays around a form of money and finance that, that is, is less immediate, I guess? I guess when I was thinking about uh, particularly the role of fiction, I was looking more broadly to think about literacy 
and the public's financial literacy because with the best one in the world I think it'd be very challenging to write a novel or a short story about the intricacies of bitcoin it would be far easier to write a novel about the way in which that particular financial development had come into being and the way it operated and its impacts on humans and on society in a particular context and this is what we see in crunchlet you know there's no crunchlet novel that seeks to tell readers about the intricacies of collateralized debt obligations or special investment vehicles okay what they do instead is they chart the origins of the financial crisis to try and help us understand how we got there and they in broad brushstrokes tell us what happened and then they look at the very human fallout that happened as a result of the crunch and in doing so they can very subtly educate us and create a different space for alternative perspectives on these events and I think genre fiction in particular can offer a really useful framework for understanding this kind of crisis because all genre fiction or genre offers us a framework, right? A set of expectations that, for example, in a crime novel, you can expect some act of criminality, some kind of investigation, some form of resolution, okay? So it's not the assurance that comes with genre that offers us, uh, in many ways, sometimes a kind of a conservative with a small c expectation, but also a real sense of security and safety that you know, in some ways, what's going to happen. You kind of know the shape of it. Um, and Crunchlet then offers not only a kind of an evolution of this ongoing concern in, in fiction, particularly uh, with financial crises and society, but it also creates a new critical platform, a critical forum for understanding the impact of financialization more broadly on contemporary society. So in Crunchlet, what we see is really the impact of what happens when we have an excessively financialized state um, before the credit crunch, and then when we're thinking about the fallout, we are encouraged to think through the characters in the novels or in the TV series or in the movies about the character of finance capital itself and its narrative manifestations in day to day life. So really, this relationship between culture and financial literacy and understanding not only offers us a medium of understanding, but in the aftermath of a crisis, it can help us regain confidence in finance. And I think culture not only has the capacity to offer us ways of anticipating risk, so it helps us work through potential future crises in a fictional forum, but it actually also makes us think about how we can help people in finance and organisations associated with finance become more aware of the long-term implications of their sometimes you know, short-term actions and hold them to account through culture. Um, you know, we need to think about how we harness culture now, I think, uh, to consider about you know, who finance serves, who do we want the financial sector to serve. And it would make me a lot happier if we saw arts and humanities working far more closely with uh, economists and sociologists, because what we all have in common is an interest in the human and in human beings and bringing some of these debates about ethics and values to life. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's really beautiful that you put it that way, because that that's kind of the motivation for the project is to to bring this kind of interdisciplinary space together to precisely ask those questions about not just understanding finance, but what its purpose is. And if it's not for making the lives of everyone better, then 
given it doesn't exist in nature, we don't have to keep it this way, do we? So, and your point about genre, you know, really speaks to, we've got some very sharp PhD students uh, linked to the project and Carl White in our uh, School of English here is really interested in the role of, of genre and literary form in, in this area. I guess building on, on what you were just saying, do you think since 2015, when your book came out, that there's been a kind of sustained genre engagement with the credit crunch. Has there been a kind of continued consideration of the complexities of money and finance? Or has our interest in our engagement kind of petered out as our interest has moved on? I think since that particular fallout period, obviously we saw waves like we do with, with all kind of contemporary cultural representation. Uh, we see the immediate first responders, we might call them. So we saw the novels that came out in the immediate years following the credit crunch that explicitly, you know, addressed them in their title or in the paratext in the front cover. Uh, and they were crunch lit novels or TV shows or films. And then thereafter, we saw perhaps more implicit and more subtle engagement as people were trying to struggle with the fallout. So, you know, if we're thinking about austerity novels, the rise of the working class novel, particularly in the UK in the years that followed, and, and novels that, and TV representations and films that sought to explore um, some of the consequences, the social, cultural, political consequences, all the way through to Brexit and Brexit and the fall of the Red Wall, um, environmental novels, and also, again, in genre fiction, you know, post-apocalyptic visions of the future. These are all legacy novels from the credit crunch, okay? They're all written in and conscious of the long shadow it casts and the changes it casts over contemporary society. So we have seen a continued engagement. And now with COVID and the impact of the pandemic on our relationship with money and spending and saving and poverty and the increased divide between the haves and have nots, then I think this is something we can expect to continue. Yeah, and looking at those kind of intersectional inequalities that you mentioned, we sort of gestured towards gender as being really important earlier. My interview with Lee Claire LaBerge in this podcast series, we discussed the problem of financialized masculinity and, and specifically the role of men in finance, both in real world institutions. So presumably a lot of the people you spoke to in your in your research but also as the chief protagonists in genre fiction. So Patrick Bateman in American Psycho and the, the kind of recurring presence of Donald Trump, interestingly, in a lot of 1980s fiction in this genre. You also raise the important gender dimension. I'm really mindful of Deborah Spar's famous description of the one gender crash that you mentioned and the subsequent use of the term he session by media commentators. I love that part of the book. And, and you introduce us to the intriguing characters of um, Viking expansionists and the recessionistas, pointing out the kind of disproportionate impact of the enduring financial crisis, because it's very much still with us, uh, and now the current pandemic on women specifically. So I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on the relationship between gender and finance as you see it. And is the solution as simple as having more women in charge of financial decision making, both formally in terms of running the banks and the hedge funds, but also becoming something that I'm interested in in my own work, becoming more active savers and investors through high street financial products? I'll come on to each of those points because they are interconnected. I mean, the, the thing that I can say globally about all of them is it's complicated, right? I am always and have always been since I started this project and even before then actually very aware of myself as, as a female academic. I have always worked on areas of writing and culture where I've often only been been the only woman in the room 
it's fair to say. You know, whether it was thinking about mining or and mining culture in the Northeast and globally, and then coming into work on finance. And there was even one of the people I spoke to, actually one of the contacts at the bank's very, very early doors said, oh, are you going to publish this book under your name? And I was like, oh, never. why would you ask that? And he's like, well, if you do K-Shaw, people might think you're a man. And I was like, yeah, they might. And it only took me one of those spirit of the stairways things when I was walking out the building going, why would they? Oh, right. So he was thinking that would be a really good thing because then I'd have more validity and more value because they thought I was like Keith Shaw or Kevin Shaw. And it was really interesting to me because when I looked about, and this is still true in loads of areas I write on, whether it's mining or whether it's like the cultural history of the North of England or finance, all the books are by men. And when you turn up to go do events, I'll be the only woman there. And you think, where are all the women? And then you talk about finance. And when I'm in the pub talking about money or whatever, in my experience, my female friends were just like, oh, I don't know. I don't know about, I don't know about my mortgage. And oh, I don't know who who our mortgage is with, or I I don't know, I've got some savings, I couldn't tell you who with. And it was my male friends who were much more on it. Now, I think for me in my world, that has massively changed. That has massively changed since I was researching this book, which is a great thing. And it's massively changed among my students I talked to. They're far more financially literate than I was at their age. And I don't know whether student loans might be partly to credit for that, that they are very, very savvy about their savings, their spending, their banking, everything really, and how they use debt to their advantage or use credit to their advantage. But gender was something I couldn't not talk about. And it's such a prominent feature of Crunchlet and thinking in particularly about how we map this onto the fallout of the crisis, right? Because in the fallout, it's all about the blame game and men are blamed in the aftermath for the financial crisis. We spoke about having Deborah Spar's quote about the one gender crash, but, you know, bankers in particular and male bankers are held as being entirely responsible for the credit crunch and singled out as being culpable. Uh, You know, this is not a crash that's caused by financialization and a crisis of this but this is a crisis of masculinity and you know we have a couple of years after the credit crunch the national council for research on women producing this report that argues that the crisis is caused by masculinity run amok and we have this story that starts to be generated around this now like most narratives it's probably not without cause um you know we're dealing with a very male dominated industry we're dealing with all of those issues about hypermasculization the language that we've talked about already but actually the truth as always is more complicated right it's not just a case of men messing it up and women being brought in to sort it out or just leveling up boards and having equal gender representation on boards as a viable way forward In fact, as in all areas of life and business, EDI, equality, diversity, inclusion is good for everyone, okay? It's good economically, it's good socially, it's good culturally. Actually, inclusive workplaces make more money, (laughs) they retain more staff, they have higher staff satisfaction, and they make a more sustainable culture. And finance is absolutely no different when it comes to that. You know, finance did have and does have an unbalanced structure that was was shifting pre-crash and is shifting now. But something that's rarely said is that, you know, it's not the only sector to have an imbalanced leadership structure. I mean, if you look at our sector, higher education, there's an absolutely appalling level of female representation at the highest levels of leadership. And that's not because women aren't capable of those roles. In fact, it's often they self-select out of them because they don't want that kind of lifestyle or that kind of job. 
Um, so it's the cultures of the work rather than the capabilities of the people that lead to these organizational structures and the, the lack of representation and the imbalance there. And certainly the people I spoke to in finance, that was absolutely the case. They saw the people who kept rose to the top. They saw the kind of lives they led and they were just like, well, no, actually, I've got a comfortable life and that, that's not for me. But in Crunchflit, we do see these real, you know, monster protagonists who are writ large and are dealing with a very, very masculine world. You know, in the book, the chapter I write about particularly men in the credit crunch, I deliberately use that epigraph from Mary Shelley, the monster is the true victim of the book because men are often profiled as being really monstrous in crunchlit fictions, but they are also victims, right? They're having to conform to this very performative masculinity, working insane hours, being isolationist and paranoid the whole time. And the protagonists, particularly of these crunchlit novels, are, you know, really damaged individuals who become morally bankrupt because they have to embrace these very, very toxic workaholic environments and practices. And then ultimately, you know, they become actualizing beings in terms of living out the reality of, of that kind of existence in that workplace. They consider themselves at like the banks too big to fail. And Crunchlit takes great delight in showing what happens when they do fail, you know, when the only source of their identity, which is work and banking, is taken away from them. So I do think culture offers us a slightly more sympathetic narrative and more rounded and considered than some media representations of men and of male bankers, but also of women. Because the other side of the coin I look at in the book is this character, as you say, of the recession Easter and the way in which the credit crunch is actually harnessed by some women in Crunchlet as an opportunity, an opportunity to think about the way in which they can use money to their advantage as part of the fallout of 2007 to eight to think about how they can change their job, change their lifestyle, how they can tap into new understandings and new skills and new abilities to recession-proof themselves for the future. And through doing this, they get, you know, a new sense of independence. And in many cases, you know, it's female characters who've lived their lives depending on a husband or depending on a partner and find this new sense of independence and power through their understanding and control of money in the wake of a credit crunch. So it is more balanced and nuanced when it comes to gender and finance in culture, I think. Writers are interested in representing men and women as victims of this broader financialized system. And also, ultimately, both genders as being capable of change and also empowerment as a result. Yeah, I think those those lessons learned, as you mentioned, by women in terms of recession proofing and changing behaviours is, is really interesting. And I wonder, I wonder more broadly, if lessons have been learned since 2008 in our present context. How do you think the public's current relationship with money and finance in the context of the pandemic has changed, if at all, with, you know, with furlough schemes, which, you know, as you mentioned, with respect to 2008 is another concept that's dropped into our language in the last 12 months that we'd had no recourse to use previously, but it is suddenly a kind of place marked for these kind of changes. So with furlough schemes and, and job retention, are, are they the latest challenge to our myths and stories about banking and finance and how the whole system works? I think the last year has, again, really acted as a bit of a catalyst. I think the pandemic has been a catalyst, not the cause of fairly significant changes in our relationship with finance. A lot of incomes, for example, were falling before the pandemic. 
Uh, and in terms of finance, not everybody is in the same boat when it comes to what's happened over the last 12 months, magnified inequalities. There are those of us who have had a huge capacity to save, to make money. There are those who have lost their jobs, who have fallen between the cracks of support mechanisms, who've lost money through no fault of their own. And in terms of money itself, if we're talking about you know money becoming invisible, we've had, because of the pandemic, huge rises in contactless payments and the amount you can use for that, rises in online banking, a ban in many cases on touching or exchanging cash. It's made people far more likely to use their phones when it comes to things like money and especially for women it's led to people saving more and learning more about how they save and their mortgages things like stamp duty holidays for example on buying houses and enabling new financial interactions and for stuff like furlough or furlough and job retention it is troubling but necessary and like the 2007 bailouts, the next generation are going to pay for them. Uh, you know, we can't just trip back into the austerity measures that came after the crash as a response. The public are now too savvy and they know they're living the reality of what happens when you run down public services as a response to a financial crisis. And I think strategically, the government even now <laughs> recognises that we can't do that because it's going to make us more vulnerable um, when challenges like any other future pandemic hits. This is not just about slashing NHS and council budgets, but it's a long-term effect on our education, our economy, our health and social care. And there's very practical changes to our relationship with money in terms of employment too. You know, will big financial employers go back into the city? Will we have that toxic workplace culture simply being replicated? Or will that be diluted as the big banks let people work from home? for example? Uh, will this have knock-on effects for what we teach children about finance? And um, particularly if we're thinking about our graduates today having to be a lot more savvy in the graduate jobs market about what jobs will be pandemic-proof for the future. Now, people have learned a lot about finance since 2007, but COVID, I think, has magnified our desire again to learn more. And ultimately, for me, what it's shown is, again, like in the wake of 2007 to eight economics and the arts and humanities need to talk more right we need to do more together because historically economics has always assumed that crises won't happen and it's it's always focused on models where crises don't occur you know if we think about the neoclassical model of economics it assumes that people are rational right it assumes that bubbles won't happen and the economy will always find its own kind of merry equilibrium now, fiction writers and artists are the opposite. They're like, oh my goodness, we're looking at the apocalypse. We're thinking about what if this disaster happens? What if that disaster happens? What would we do? How would we think through it? How would humans react? So actually we've got two systems where one is incredibly utopian and the other is incredibly dystopian. Now, what we need to do is start talking to each other more because the answer lies somewhere in the middle. By talking to each other, I think economics and culture could help society become more resilient more robust and more sustainable because what culture can do for economics is help preserve risk in the collective memory right now while your banks and your financial organizations lose staff over time uh, new generations of bankers come in with that we lose institutional knowledge about risk and about crises the last crisis is long gone for this new generation of bankers so culture can step in there and help prevent 
finance making the same mistakes again by reminding us what happened and making it relevant in a very human story. So we also need to think then about the capacity of culture to offer us education, but also successful models of working, not just in terms of thinking through how we might navigate a crisis or a, you know, a dystopian future that could come from a financial crisis, but also to think about strategic working. You know, in novels and films and TV series, they all map out how we have to operate as a society, but also internationally in the response to these crises. And in these TV shows and novels and films, what we see is America working with Russia, working with China as a way of coming together around these challenges. So culture offers us a platform for considering what works, a way of achieving alternative responses. Because economics and culture ultimately have more in common than either would like to think. Economics is not a science, it's a social science, and art and economics need each other, and they need to be on better terms. They need to be less sniffy with each other, because they both have a shared interest at heart, and that's humans and how they behave. And humans are tricksy. If we look to Galbraith, who outlines how you know prone humans are to recurrent descents into instability, bouts of this crazy speculative euphoria, and then we've got people like Minsky who say, well, yeah, but stability is also really destabilizing and it leads to overconfidence and we forget about danger and then we run headlong into it. Culture comes in here. Culture helps us think about understanding this pattern of human behavior over time. And if we think about the big challenges that could face us today, looking ahead as contemporary society, Mark Carney recently said, you know, the three biggest challenges are covid climate and credit. If we think about that, then by working together, economics and culture can help us become far more resilient and put us in a much better place to tackle those challenges. We need to tackle through economics and culture this too big to fail idea. Through culture, we can become more robust and hold economics to account. We can't have another lost decade at this point in response to COVID. We can't sustain austerity again. We haven't got another $15 trillion to throw at the fallout of another crisis. We have to still carry on restoring our faith in the financial system and in banking and the social capital of finance that really suffered in the wake of the credit crunch. And so really, I guess, to kind of sum up my opinion with all of this post-COVID is the same as a credit crunch, right? We do well to start paying attention to fiction as well as to finance, to challenge ourselves, to take on some of the big matters that are going to face us in the years ahead. Wow, that's such an amazing rallying call for our project in terms of this need of economists and those on the arts and the humanities to come together to try and solve these problems. I think that's yeah, it's a real motivator for what we've been trying to do. So it's wonderful to hear it expressed so passionately and with such faith that we can do this, right? There's got to be a reason for us getting up in the morning and doing all of this. And I think that's, yeah, you've captured that beautifully. You've been really generous with your time. So just as a final question, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? So my current project are not books, actually. They're all bits of consultancy research. So they're all looking in one way or another at the UK's creative industries and decentralizing and diversifying our creative industries 
with a particular focus on publishing. So I was involved in the Common People Research Project last year that looked at um, bringing on more working class writers into the publishing industry in the UK. We've got a few following projects from that. So one of them is working with um, the Authors Licensing and Copyright Society to look at the uh, regional powerhouses of writing in the UK and particularly thinking about post-COVID, how we can make writing as an industry more resilient because so many of our writers are freelancers that they've fallen between the gaps as a result of COVID, thinking about that furlough scheme question. But actually, all of our other creative industries almost rely on writing as a source industry. You know, without writers, we haven't got theatre, we haven't got TV, we haven't got film, we haven't got publishing. So we're thinking about the importance of working on more resilient models of writing with ALCS. And I'm also researcher in residence for a new project called A Writing Chance that we're doing with the Joseph Browntree Foundation and the Daily Mirror and the New Statesman and New Writing North which is going to run a kind of a talent competition and development program to find 10 new working class journalists to try and encourage the representation of more working class voices and perspectives in UK journalism today, which we think is incredibly important post-election and Brexit and Red Wall. And I'm also, well, I'm really happy to be the co-author of the new all-party parliamentary group for Northern Culture inquiry report into um, the post-COVID plans for recovering Northern culture and how we can help the cultural sector in the North pivot itself for the years ahead. So again, thinking about the role of creative industries and how we can champion culture and think about investing in culture as part of our kind of strategy for powering up the North for the next 10 years. So many of the same issues that we were tackling in terms of the fallout from credit crunch, you know, the power of culture and putting it into dialogue with economics and society to think about how we can be more really than the sum of our parts through partnership working and that's really been enabled through bringing people around the table who wouldn't normally work together it's fair to say that joseph roundtree foundation and the daily mirror and the new statesman wouldn't normally be project partners it's odd for a literature professor like me to be working on some of these projects but that's kind of i think what we need to start doing And that's what I mean when I say that economics and culture have to come together, that we don't see, certainly in our sector, loads of funding awards that are ring-fenced for allowing collaboration between disciplines. And we all champion interdisciplinary research, but actually where's the funding pot that would allow me as a cultural studies scholar to come together with a high economic theorist and think I'm potentially an industry partner and think about doing a policy paper, for example. So I just think that, you know, For me, the way I work, I've always worked at the margins and at the intersections. And for me, that's where the most interesting research happens and the most um, innovative research can happen by bringing together people who you wouldn't normally smash up against each other. So that's really characterised all of my projects uh, that are ongoing. And there will be another book and there will definitely be something about the 10 year anniversary of the credit crunch as well. Wow, fantastic. We'll definitely be keeping an eye on all of that. Katie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this morning. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about the Cultural Life of Money and Finance project, please visit our website at culturallifeofmoney.leads.ac.uk. Follow us on Twitter at Cultural Money and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or other major podcast platforms. We're grateful to the Leeds Arts and Humanities Research Institute and to the Leeds Creative Lab scheme at the Cultural Institute for their support for our project. And above all, we'd like to say thanks to you for listening.